When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Midnight Myth. Uh, Before we begin this week's episode, quick public service announcement. Laurel and I are going to be taking the next two weeks off. Uh, The reason being that... The season. It is coming up on Christmas. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of uh, traveling that we have to do. And uh, we just realized that rather than trying to force a, you know, not stellar Midnight Myth quality episode it'd be best to take a few weeks off, which we haven't taken a break since our vacation. So hopefully you guys are cool with that. Um, Yeah, but that means we probably won't see you again or you won't hear us in your earphones again until 2018. Uh, And that's pretty momentous for us because we started our podcast in January of 2017. Uh, So this is the last podcast of our first year. And that's exciting. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of emotional. So thank you all for coming on this ride with us, for joining us in analyzing your favorite stories and all of the historical and uh, mythological and philosophical implications of them. And we hope to bring you much, much more in the coming years. Uh, And as you know, every time we take a break, we try to come back with stories from the places that we've traveled to and all kinds of new inspiration. So we'll be back in full force uh, in the new year. Yeah. So without further ado, this week's episode, we thought it would be fitting to do a Christmas episode for a whole host of reasons. One, Christmas is both of our favorite holiday and it is Christmas season, and Christmas is a season and a holiday that I think, from a literature and film perspective, sort of stands apart from other holidays. There's so much Christmas material to mine um, from the world of fiction that uh, it, it really has lots of different ways that it can go. So we did a lot of research, debate, and thought And we wanted to answer the question is, what makes a really great Christmas story? And to answer that question, we had to really think of, okay, well, what is Christmas actually about? 
Um, not only in its historical context, but in its present day. Yeah, I actually went out into the snow and I was kind of distraught and I just raised my voice to the heavens and I screamed, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? And uh, Derek had some great answers for me. But yeah, yeah. We thought maybe we would find the was that, answers. Was that a Charlie that. Brown Christmas special reference? Yeah, well yeah, done. Um, Sorry, I guess I ruined it that I called it out, but I wanted to make sure I got the <laughs> reference right. But we, we thought that what better place to find the answer to that question than the stories that stick with us, the stories that resonate as Christmas stories for the ages. And so for this very first Midnight Myth Christmas, we decided to zero in on a Christmas story that is everywhere, a Christmas story that everyone knows, but maybe doesn't look into as much as you as as you thought. Uh, and, and we maybe hoped. you've taken it for granted. Yeah. And haven't really peeled under the uh, the surface and tried to see what the story is truly about. And we hoped that we could bring to you a little more light. We could shed a little more light on this story from the past. And that is Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Yeah, I'm super stoked to talk about it. You know, we realized that in the, the, the world of Christmas narrative and Christmas storytelling, that there are two fundamental types floating around currently. Those are the ones that are inherently commercial. Those are your... Jingle all the ways. And your Hallmark uh, Christmas romances. Right. And there's nothing wrong with those movies. Those Not are your Home all. Alones. Yeah, um, you your know, Love Actuallys. Absolutely. But these are movies that happen to be during Christmas. And yeah, they are fun and touching and usually have some sort of a moral um, to them. But they're ultimately just for consumption. And then there's the other type of Christmas movies. And the ones that I think try to capture a spirit of humanity through the filter of the holiday. And I think a Christmas Carol written by Charles Dickens and adapted, you know, countless times, literally countless. It's in the thousands. We tried to figure out how many times this story has been adapted between film and TV and stage and screen and radio and everything. It's, it's almost impossible to count. It's literally too many times. It can't be counted. So um, we thought that there is a, a story of, redemption and fundamental uh, human goodness that Christmas, a real Christmas story needs to highlight the best of humanity. And doing that Dickens also starts with the worst of humanity. Yeah. You know, and, and a story that gets us to redemption. And I think that is the, the crux of every really, really fantastic Christmas story. The ones that I think will be told uh, for centuries, I think they're going to have a, a, you know, Dickensian sort of, you know, redemption story or arc to them. Yeah. Um, to kind of jump into the meat and potatoes of Christmas Carol, uh, I don't want to spend too much time summarizing it for our audience because I, we can't, all know it. I can't imagine Bahamuk. that anyone listening to this can't doesn't know it by heart, but right? consider that your spoiler wall if you don't know it. <laughs> your spoiler alert for a Christmas <laughs> yeah. Carol. Uh, and we'll, we'll definitely share some of our favorite adaptations if you want to get started, if you're a, if you're a newbie to it. Um, but to jump into really what's going on in there, uh, I think one of the the things that makes uh, A Christmas Carol fascinating to us uh, sort of through the ages and j- it takes it out of being a period piece, takes it out of being, you know, in that moment of Victorian London is that it reaches back to not only the uh, the Christian foundations of the holiday uh, and the, the ideas of peace on earth, goodwill toward men and 
you know, working together to create a, an earth that is worthy of, uh, of divinity, but it reaches back and, and tugs at some of the most universal and the most, uh, you know, base instincts that created the Christmas holiday. So it, it reaches back and it touches all of the pagan influences. It touches the reasons why, uh, you know, ancient Romans and ancient Syrians and the like were having these midwinter festivals in the middle of the darkest and coldest months of the year. Uh, Christmas, I, I think it's pretty well known by now. Uh, Christmas, uh, as it is today, uh, incorporates countless traditions from those pagan festivals, like the Feast of Sol Invictus, the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, uh, and other solstice celebrations like Saturnalia and Yule, uh, which is a time of year when, of course, uh, you know, it's midwinter and the days are getting short, the nights are getting long, the harvest is over. We're looking forward to, you know, a few more months of darkness and coldness and famine and wondering if we're going to survive, if we're going to make it out the other end. And that's that's what seasonal affective disorder comes from, right? There's a lot of despair <laughs> yep. that comes from not seeing the sun. Winter kind of sucks. Winter sucks. <laughs> and so for ancient people, it was like, what else are we going to do in the winter? Are we going to sit around and mope and be sad? Or are we going to throw a big drunken party around a bonfire? Are we going to celebrate uh, you know, the, the evergreen trees that don't lose their leaves in this time and try to be like the evergreen trees and make sure we come out the other side? Uh, and that's where this holiday comes from. And that's, I think, where Dickens is pointing. Uh, Dickens wants to create a version of all of us that is evergreen. Dickens wants us to carry the Christmas spirit all the year long. And that's why we end up with the structure that we do of incorporating the past, the present, and the future through the ghosts, through the essences of the Christmas that was, the Christmas that is, and the Christmas that will be. Well, well, well said. A lot of dense material. Um, well, well thought out. I, uh, I in particular love your calling to the sort of pre-Christian ideas of Christmas. Yeah. And Christmas to me highlights the, the, the historical reality that we don't live in a vacuum, that our traditions our very individuality and culture come from a long chain that has uh, happened before us and that we are part of this chain. And Christmas encapsulates the idea that a holiday can now transcend uh, through time and can transcend through tradition and through different ideologies, economic systems, faiths, and still to this day represent the biggest holiday. And I think one of the critiques of Christmas in a Americana sense oh, yeah. is its, um, you know, its servitude towards capitalism and its ability to be very materialistic yeah. and how that Christmas is then marketed and sold by companies who are seeking to, to make money. And, and that's all around the tradition of presents and gift giving, yeah. making this the best time of year for retailers. And while those criticisms are true, I think what A Christmas Carol ultimately teaches us is that materialism for the sake of materialism, and I don't mean materialism in a uh, 
you know, Charles Darwin or, you right, know, yeah. sense. I mean, you know, biological. Yeah. yeah I, I don't mean uh, dialectic materialism, which is a uh, philosophical school of thought topic for another podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, materialism in the capitalist sense that people seek out material, meaning they seek clothes, cars, toys, presents, whatnot. That goods will make you happy. And what we find, I think, in the great Christmas stories they break through that and they realize that the present is really about love. Yeah. It's about sharing love with someone and that giving is better than receiving. Yeah. Look at gift of the Magi is another one to point to, uh, for the, the spirit of gift giving. Yeah. Yeah. And what do we have in our, um, most unhappy of, uh, protagonists in Scrooge? We have a man who is obsessed with his wealth. Yeah. And people have become a ends by which he secures wealth. He represents the most awful side of Victorian London and the character, the, the, and what, what are these um, characteristics? Pardon me. These characteristics are greed, lack of empathy, not caring about other human beings and just generally being a fucking dick to everybody he comes across. Yeah. You know, so like, not only is he lack of, you know, lacks empathy and doesn't care about anyone, he flaunts it in everyone's face, how much he doesn't care about everyone. Yeah. And this, such a strange protagonist to start a Christmas story, the worst that Victoria London can produce would be Scrooge. And it upends this idea of materialism as a end within, uh, as a, as the end of all ends. Scrooge is even worse than a materialist, too, because he's not only wealthy, he doesn't just uh, seek to improve his wealth, but his obsession with uh, having monetary uh, success doesn't even allow him to spend anything on comforts. He doesn't have goods. He lives a very ascetic lifestyle, uh, and he he doesn't spend money on himself. He doesn't spend money on others. He is just obsessed with you know, having amassing that. wealth to amass wealth. Yeah. So he is, he is the most wretched. He is the most, uh, unhappy of people. And yet he believes that continuing to amass this wealth is going to bring him some kind of satisfaction in the form of power. Uh, and Scrooge is also the epitome of what Dickens was looking at as the you know moral rot of Victorian society and what we can still look at today as a symbol of the characteristics that we don't want. Uh, Dickens was really horrified by what he saw on the streets of London and children being exploited, the poor being you know worked to death and not having what they needed to get by. And he was disappointed in you know, the 1%, he was disappointed in those who had and who refused to share just based on the merits of believing that every man was good and deserving of love and uh, support. Totally. And how does Scrooge go through this transformation? You know, how does he go from the worst of protagonists that you ever, ever had protagonisting? That's not a word. <laughs> I just made that up. But how does he go from such a wretched piece of shit to a saint. To a really, really good man, you know? And that journey involves a, a spiritual and supernatural influence. Yeah. By his visitation of one ghost and three spirits. 
The ghost of his business partner, Jacob Marley, comes to warn him from the afterlife saying, hey, your moral decisions matter and you're going to pay a price if you continue down this road of just being wretched to everybody. Yeah, you're going to pay the price that I did, which is that I ended up in these chains that I forged myself. I have no one else to blame for them and I'm here to warn you against that. So then, of course, uh, our dear Scrooge is visited by three spirits. The ghost of Christmas past is the first one. Uh, I love Dickens' portrayal of the ghost of Christmas past as sort of a, a flickering light. He resembles uh, you know, a, a candlelight. He wears a little extinguisher for a cap, uh, and he bears you know, a, a sprig of holly in his hand. And that reminds me, of course, of the light of the past, which memory is always changing. Memory is always changeable, and it's hard to hold on to. But if you, you know, stand close to it, it can warm you, right? Like a little flickering flame. He takes, uh, he takes Scrooge into his own memories, uh, his, his childhood, which kind of brings joy to the, you know, to the unhappy Scrooge who hasn't smiled or laughed in years, uh, just to see that version of himself that hasn't really been corrupted yet. And yet there's still some pity, there's regret, there's pain. And sadness, his, his memories that are shown. So the, the spirits have the power to take Scrooge in the present and show him different times, but only on Christmas days. Right, So the ghost of Christmas past can only show him his past Christmases in which he was lonely. He was you know, kicked out um, by his parents who did not come and get him from his uh, boarding school, and he spent his Christmases alone in study. So though he is happy to see this young Scrooge, and he's happy to see that Scrooge has a future ahead of him and the joy of childhood, and it does warm his heart, Myself, just as a, a reader of Dickens and as a watcher of the adaptations, help, can't help but feel pity. The only comfort that he had in the time where you're supposed to be surrounded by friends and family was pursuing his academic discipline. Yeah. Even as a kid, he was a man about his business, right. forging the man he would ultimately then become. So it reminds us of the light of the past, and it reminds us of the hope, childhood, is a symbol of growth and a symbol of innocence and virtue and potential. And we, where do we see him in his school? The place where your potential is actualized with an education that you can go take to the world. But it's also lonely because no kid should be studying at Christmas. I found was very interesting is at the very end of that memory. Finally, his sister comes and says, you know what? You know, our dad's actually being a little nicer you can come home for this Christmas. So he finally gets a Christmas where he can go home. It's beautiful. There's also a moment in that memory uh, where he is kind of looking upon his childhood self and the uh, the children surrounding him and the, the joy that they have and remembering the pain of that Christmas where he reflects upon that day when a little boy came caroling at his office and he pretty much slammed the door in his face and he thinks, oh, I, I should have liked him. to have given him something. So right right out of the gate that this journey into his past has been instructive, that he realized that, man, like, like anyone looking at your past, you will have regrets. You know, the idea of having no regrets sounds good in theory. Oh, sure, yeah. But you're not being an honest or contemplative individual if you don't look at your own history and think, 
what if this thing was different? What if I had done this thing? What if I was a little more brave? Or what if I was a little more pure of heart? What if I was a little less frightened? What my life could have been? And Scrooge goes through immense pain as he gets into his next memory, which is of old Fezziwig, where he meets his true love. Yeah, and this is a time when he's sort of embracing the joy of Christmas too. You know, the 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 skinflint of Scrooge is always under the surface, but we we do see this raucous party. Fezziwigs are oh, the Fezziwigs are amazing. I was saying to Derek yesterday that if there are two characters in A Christmas Carol that we are or that we will be, it's the Fezziwigs. It's the Fezziwigs. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, they're just awesome. And you Come know, on. they just want to give. They we, just all, wanna... <laughs> we all want to go to Fezziwig's parties. They just <laughs> they... want to have a party, and they want everyone around them to be happy. Uh, and, and that's beautiful. And if you're watching the 1999 Muppets version of Christmas Carol, it's Fuzzywigs. It's the definitive adaptation, I would <laughs> it say. It is the Fuzzywigs. Fo- the Fuzzywigs, yeah. Um, <laughs> Fuzzy the bear. <laughs> but he meets his true love, and, and later we see a Christmas where she leaves him. Uh, because of the hardening of his heart, because Scrooge has outwardly become a person who uh, who holds to wealth uh, more than human connection, and we're seeing him depart from this unity that he once had with this woman uh, and just become the hardened old soul that he is now. And that's another moment that we are just tinged with that regret if things had gone differently. And we do see what happens if things had gone differently. Uh, we see where Belle... The, the woman that he loved ends up uh, with surrounded by children and surrounded by joy and presents and trees and twinkling lights. Uh, and that's a glimpse of a life that Scrooge could have had if he had just been a little, a little more awake, a little more open in those times of the past. Right. And it makes me think too is how did Scrooge's heart get so hardened? It's because he lost his true love. Right. And like, that's something we can all identify with heartbreak that he had a heart at one point and it was broken and he was never able to mend it. And I think that transitions my, for my view of Scrooge out of this, this guy's just a dick to like, holy shit, there's some legit tragedy. You know, the ghost of Christmas past tells us that Scrooge has a very difficult and troubled past. He didn't have a happy life at all which is how he ended up so unhappy yet successful. Right. It humanizes him, in other words. Yeah. Uh, But as we know, just from being humans, uh, we can't just dwell on our past, right? No, we can't. Uh, It doesn't do to just wallow in unhappy memories. And if you do that... I I can't just read history books all the time? No. It's absolutely important to understand your past, but it's not a place to live. Uh, we have to live, of course, in the present. And this takes us to the Ghost of Christmas present, who is my absolute favorite part of this book. Oh, I don't yeah. know how you feel. Um, yeah, I, I like the Ghost of Christmas present. I'm I'm a big fan of Tiny Tim oh, and the yeah. character Tiny Tim. Absolutely. And so this is our first look into Tiny Tim. I think this is also where the story... Uh, takes on a much higher social commentary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the ghost of Christmas present is a giant who is showing Scrooge. We all know the story. He shows him 
Christmases that are happening. Yeah. And it takes him to his employee, Bob Cratchit's office, to Scrooge before this this journey into his home. You know, Bob Cratchit is a useful tool. Yeah. Someone that helps him run his accounts and his businesses. One thing about Dickens is that he was very careful with how he named his characters. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know what that character is. Yeah, he's but a dick. But Bob Cratchit, I love, he he even mentions that he only makes 15 Bob a week, only 15 copies of his Christian name. And the name Cratchit, he's a, he's a clerk, so he... Uh, copies uh, financial records by hand. It almost sounds like the stroke of a pen. Uh, right. So that's all Bob is to uh, to Scrooge. He is a waste of money, and he is a writer. Right. And then when Scrooge gets to hang out in Bob Cratchit's home, and he gets to see Tiny Tim in particular, and see the the spirit that this young sick child represents that this child has the the capacity to be happy and joyful despite his immense suffering and that this family this whole family yeah can be happy and joyful despite their suffering which is no worse than having a sick child i mean god can you oh. think of anything worse and they don't have the means to really treat him and they barely have the means to put together an actual decent feast and yet they all treat it as though it's you know a, a royal festival I'd love to rewind just a little bit oh, and sure. talk about uh, the spirit himself, the ghost of Christmas. Oh, present. yeah, let's do it. I jumped right into my favorite part. Oh, you're Sorry. Fine. And yeah. I think Tiny Tim is the key to all of this. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll definitely we'll put a pin in that and come back to him. But I'd love to just talk about what this uh, imagery evokes when we first see the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, in the books, he's described as uh, as being this giant, jolly figure with a green robe and a, a rusted scabbard where no sword hangs. So he seems huge and and uh, powerful, but in no way dangerous. Or he, threatening, yeah. Yeah, he has these long, luscious curls and a big beard, and his chest is bare, as though he can't keep covered up. Uh, and he wears a crown of holly and icicles. And he he calls to mind a lot of uh, touchstones in that imagery. Uh, in every adaptation, when you see him physically, it's hard not to think of Father Christmas. It's hard not to think of Santa Claus. Uh, and True. in that same tradition, he calls to mind a lot of pagan uh, pagan gods, uh, even Odin and Zeus-like figures. But uh, you know, the green man and any any figure that has led into the tradition of Father Christmas or the spirit of Christmas, he embodies all of that with goodness and goodwill and good cheer and big belly laughs. And he is surrounded by this Christmas ephemera, by oranges and apples and, and suckling pigs and ham and turkey and uh, holly and cranberries and everything you can possibly imagine when you think of a Christmas dinner or Christmas decorations. It's all natural and it's beautiful and it's perishable. Uh, so it's something that you might set up as a beautiful display for a feast, but if you left it alone and came back tomorrow, it would all be withered and rotten, right? It's in the fullness of life and bounty. And he represents that, the present, the the plump fruit of the present, uh, and the full sun, the full rays of sun. Yeah, I, I also think um, him being a giant, the present is the giant. It is the now. It is the thing that we're constantly in. It's huge, you know, and I, I think the idea that the present being so big 
and and so jovial and so non-threatening um, is a big metaphor to the idea that like this is actually happening now. These aren't memories. These aren't flickering in and out of view. This is what is actually occurring in the world right now. Yeah. Scrooge, you need to see this world like you've never seen it before. And it's been a giant. It's been in front of you this whole time. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Bob Cratchit and his suffering at the hands of his it, you know, near indentured servitude to Scrooge has always been a giant staring Scrooge in the face. But he's just never looked until an actual giant yeah. shows him it. And one of the first thing he says to Scrooge is, have you never seen the like of me before? Right. He says, have you, do you have many, many brothers? He says, there have been more than 1,800 before me. Uh, we get the sense that this spirit lives and dies by the light of the Christmas holiday, and then a new one is born up from his ashes, essentially. Uh, he withers and perishes just like the fruit at the Christmas table. He is the present, he is the now. And yet Scrooge has never noticed him before because he's never indulged in the spirit of Christmas. Uh, another thing that the spirit does... Well done. Truly effectively, I think, is to simply repeat back lines that... Uh, that Scrooge has said to others, things like... Uh, the depletion of the surplus population. Yeah, he asks if Tiny Tim will die. To come back to Tiny Tim, uh, Scrooge is really moved by you know the display of that Christmas dinner, uh, and he's, he's definitely affected by uh, the spirit of Tiny Tim, who is still, you know still fighting and still growing stronger and still, you know, trying to keep up a good face for his family. He says, will the child die? Uh, and the spirit is like, yeah, I kind of, I, I can't really see the future, but I can see if the shadows remain unaltered that there's going to be a crutch without an owner. But of course, if he was going to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Which is a line that Scrooge says, uh, he says it to the people looking for charity, right? Yeah. So in the very beginning of the, uh, the, the book or the adaptation, wherever you're getting your Scrooge from, um, in the very beginning, there are two uh, people going to, you know, those with wealth during Christmas and asking for charity donations to help the poor. And one of them, when Scrooge refuses, says, but, you know, some of these poor people are going to die. And Scrooge's response is, well, that'll deplete the surplus population. Yeah. So by parroting back the same line that he had said not hours before, Scrooge is kind of hit with that dagger in his heart. Uh, by actually taking in the sorrow and the suffering of others, he can see the impact of his own choices and his own words. And it's something that the spirit does again. Uh, you know, we we travel through some of the the moments of Christmas present. And they all evoke that same thing. There are people who are out there who are poor or who are starving or who don't really know how to scrape together a good holiday for their family. And yet, just by being together and just by putting in a little bit of effort to, to comfort each other and bring each other joy, they achieve that most magical of times, that Christmas spirit. But it's something that the spirit does again uh, at the very end of this episode uh, when he brings forth the two children who cling to his legs. This is one of the more terrifying parts, I think, of the story. Yeah, just a total side note. 
this story is fucked up. It's it is terrifying. so terrifying and dark. Anyway, continue. Yeah, it's it, the subtitle is a ghost story for Christmas, which I love because I think Christmas is totally spooky. That's why it it's really a great is holiday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he brings forth these two children who are emaciated and just look, uh, you know, evil and 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 unwanted and unloved. And he names them. He says, "This is ignorance, and this is want," uh, and insinuates that these are the things that that kill him at the end of the day, that are making him grow old, that deplete the Christmas spirit, ignorance to uh, what's really going on in the world, which is that, you know, by the bonds of love with other people, we can be richer than we think, and want, which really speaks to, like, a lack of something. It speaks to um, that want of fill-in-the-blank. And by succumbing to those things we forget to look at what's really right in front of us. And here again, the spirit, you know, repeats back to Scrooge, uh, something that he said before. Scrooge says, uh, you know, is there no refuge for these children? And the spirit says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And this is where the spirit fades. Uh, it's a really touching episode, I think, in Scrooge's journey. It's yeah. yeah, it's it's scary, and this seems like the friendliest spirit, right? He seems like the one who brings the joy and brings the love and brings the friendliness, uh, and then he hits Scrooge with this just painful, painful, and uh, you know, horrible moment of like, you're the reason Christmas dies. Yeah, yeah, wow, and. Uh, it truly is touching. And, you know, it reminds me that when Scrooge starts to see that human beings, just by virtue of them loving each other, can create more good cheer and create more worth than all of the money in the world, I think is where we see that Scrooge really realizes how much he has erred and how much he has wronged the Cratchits. It's pivotal. It's pivotal to Scrooge's journey. Um, and centered to me in that is is the symbolism of Tiny Tim. We go back. Yeah. So we start his journey in this spirit quest, you know, for lack of a better term, with him as a child. And I think the the switching point where he really starts to realize that, man, you know, I do need to live my life differently is around Tiny Tim. yeah. He is, he is the linchpin that holds this together and that really uh, provides that, that major change for Scrooge. There's another moment that's just so subtle and so political in this episode, and that's that um, the spirit is going around and pretty much blessing the houses, and he offers a blessing on the poor, and Scrooge asks, why are you blessing the poor more than others? And the spirit says, well, because they need it more. And it's so simple. It's such an obvious answer. Uh, But it's not because they deserve it more. It's not because they worked harder for it. Who knows? Maybe they did. Uh, It's not because they are better people. But they need it more. And this is Dickens speaking directly to us, saying, you know, we have to give to those who need just because they need it, because all human life is worthy of support. it's just a reminder that maybe we don't always have to look for the merit or the reward to ourselves and just give because people need it. I think that is a very good point because 
the ghost of Christmas present teaches us that even in the face of suffering, there's great dignity. Even in the face of poverty, there's great love. And even in the face of looking at individuals as a burden on society, they bring great joy to the world. And worth. And fundamental worth. And I think the Christmas Carol is a political narrative in many ways. And I think you'd pointed out one of the ways in which it is. You know, I think one of the measures that we need to have as a species of whether or not we're doing a good job just being and existing is how do we treat those less fortunate? And the reality is humanity has constantly failed that. Yeah. And what Christmas Carol teaches us is that we really could do better. And I think, um, you know, one of the calls to action, something that you mentioned a few episodes ago is to think in what way, can we all give? Because if we all give something, everyone's life gets a little better. Yeah. And if we can all be a little less Scrooge-like, you know, in the way that we value our wealth and our privilege and try to share some of that, if everyone just shared a little more, God, what a better planet we'd have. Right? <laughs> it seems it seems so simple. But it's so true. Yeah. Um, to... To move so true. Through the story a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm very passionate You're, and like, I'm feeling the feels right now oh, going through it. this story. I really am. That's that's what I hope for with this episode because a, a story that you've heard so many times, maybe it doesn't ring as true as as always before, and it's it's always time to uh, look a little closer. It's always time to revisit your favorite stories with a keener eye toward what you can be doing better. And Absolutely. what lessons you can take from that story. Um, so, I'd love yeah. to, oh, go ahead. I'd love to quickly uh, just point out that, of course, this story is called A Christmas Carol, named after you know the Christmas songs that you sing. Uh, you might go door to door and sing Christmas songs or sing with a choir. Uh, and Dickens structured it narratively um, in staves rather than chapters. So each uh, each episode in it is a stave, which refers to the staff on a piece of sheet music. Uh, so I sometimes like to look at it as uh, a collection of verses of a Christmas song. So we might have an opening where we understand uh, the birth of Jesus or some phenomenon of of Christmas. And as the song progresses, we hear a little bit more about the others surrounding it. We hear about the shepherds. We hear about the wise men. Uh, and then we hear about uh, perhaps Christ in, in a new aspect as this vanquisher of Satan or as this uh, you know master of death. And here's the stave of the Christmas carol where uh, we see death start to loom over the story. Yep. I was talking before about living in the past versus living in the present, uh, but we can't complete this without understanding how to interpret the future and how to hold the future in our minds as well. Uh, and what is the one end we all meet? No matter how much wealth or lack of wealth, how much virtue or sin, we all end in the same place, which is we all end up mortal. We die. Yeah. So what better form is there for the ghost of Christmas yet to come to take than one that resembles the Grim Reaper, one that resembles the uh, sort of universal figure of death, uh, which again harkens to uh, not only 
like a Christian angel of death, but uh, pagan figures, uh, like the Greek god of, of time, Kronos, uh, and figures across all kinds of cultures and mythologies have an angel of death or a cloaked figure or uh, something that represents... The river man on what, river sticks. Yeah, what, what takes you to the other side. And this is a disturbing stave, to say the least. Yeah, uh, in an already dark narrative, it gets darker where we saw cheer and we saw happiness and joy and comfort before, now we see none of that. Uh, we, we understand from the story that some man in London has died and that no one is upset about it. And no one gives two fucking fucks. Uh, his possessions are being sold um, after some thieves have gone and taken them from his house. Uh, there are men gathered uh, you know, talking about whether anyone will show up at the funeral. Uh, there's a, a great moment in the Muppet Christmas Carol where it's the pigs who are like, I might not mind going if lunch is provided. And that's straight <laughs> from the book, though. Like, that is straight from the book. There's oh, men God, who are like, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll go if there's free food. Yeah. Uh, and we see just this nasty underbelly of uh, of just disdain for this poor, wretched person who died without a single loved one. And then we see to return again to Tiny Tim, that the Cratchit house has a shadow over it. That yeah. There is a, a really terrible loss has taken place, and of course we understand that to suggest that Tiny Tim is gone. And this truly breaks Scrooge's heart. Um, and yet Scrooge, walking through all of this, is fairly ignorant, whether willfully or, or truthfully, of who this wretched man who died might be. But we audience members know, right out of the gate, we know that they're talking about Scrooge. And he has to be shown that on a headstone. He has to see his own name uh, as this unloved person who passed through the world and no one cared when they lived or died. Uh, and that really is, uh, you know, pardon the you know many-leveled pun, but the final nail in the coffin uh, and if you've read the if you've read the book, you understand all the levels of that pun. Right. Um, but that that is what really sews it up for Scrooge, because it's not enough for him to have regretted, uh, you know, losing his love. It's not enough for him to feel bad that the person that uh, that works hardest for him doesn't have enough to provide for his family and sick child. There has to be this element of uh, understanding consequence. Uh, we were talking about this before, and we did an episode a few weeks ago about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and I, I, I sort of likened it to uh, the Deathly Hallows as a, as a narrative, um, in that if you unite those three gifts from death, you become master of it by way of no longer fearing your mortal end uh, and embracing your mortal end and sort of accepting with love that fate that amor fati, that love of fate. And this is kind of what is happening to Scrooge here. He has to unite his regrets from the past with his shame from the future. And with his empathy from the present. Uh, yeah, and his empathy from the present and then his, his fear about the future. Uh, and by uniting all of those things, can he truly find some longevity in that, uh, that change that he undergoes? Can he truly you know, guarantee that he is going to remain the good soul that he becomes? 
Um, I also think that that union of past, present, and future reminds me again of those midwinter festivals, reminds me of the winter solstice. What is that day but the shortest day of the year and the longest night? Uh, the present is uncertain, right? Uh, but we know from the past that it was sunny and that the crops grew and that we were happy and the nights were short and the days were long. In the moment, it sort of seems a little shaky. We're on you know, less, uh, less certain ground and it, there's some fear there. But we know that in the future there is hope. And by uniting that you know, comfort from the past, the joy of the present and the hope of the future, can we truly come together and carry the spirit through all the year? I love that analysis. I would uh, add to it that I almost feel like the character Scrooge has not contemplated his mortality no. in any significant way, that he has lived his entire life with more or less blinders on to the fact that he will die. And what does that mean? What does the world look like when he's gone? And when forced with confronting his mortality, he realizes that, you know, I, I have to actually act. My time is limited. I can't just sit around collecting money. You know, like that is actually not the way to live. And from that, we get the transition when he realizes that he is not dead, when he realizes that this was just his spirit vision, he instantly starts to embrace life in a new way. And I think we all have to confront our mortality in an honest and truthful way. We're not going to be here forever like Scrooge. And the question is, knowing that our time is limited and knowing that we've all probably wasted some of that time, what do we do? And what Scrooge does is he shows what the best of humanity would do with that. You know, the best of humanity would give more than they take. The best of humanity would try to right the wrongs. The best of humanity would try to help a sick kid, you know, just to help the sick kid, you know, and we see that. And I think that is the, the tidal wave moment of what makes a great Christmas story is that there's something amazing in humanity and that when we unlock that that generosity, that true human-to-human -human empathy, we're capable of such amazing, great things. And no, we're not going to right every wrong of the world, but if Scrooge helps one sick kid live, he has done his part. You know, Dickens... Uh had a philosophy that the measure of any good society was how it treated its children. Uh, and he's writing this, you know, at the tail end of the Industrial Revolution when, uh, you know, children are being shipped out to factories because their fingers are small and they can get in with the fiddly bits and all the machinery and children are being crippled at an alarming rate. There are tiny Tims everywhere. And he's so heartbroken by this that he needs to give something back with his own gift, which is the gift of language, uh, that can help to sway the Victorian mind. And while it was so impactful in its time, I think that A Christmas Carol truly does, uh, like you said before, transcend time and space. Uh, the sheer fact that it's been adapted to so many uh, so many different versions, whether they are you know 
uh, truthful or uh, faithful adaptations of Victorian England or adaptations with Muppets or adaptations in, uh, you know, a, on a different planet, uh, in a different galaxy, um, or for our own time in the TV industry, uh, it's shown itself as a story that can still be implemented as a lesson. We have to treat those less vulnerable, um, treat those more vulnerable than us as worthy of praise, as worthy of love, as worthy of support. And here's the thing. We haven't heard that lesson well enough, right? We are not all living up to the spirits of Christmas every day. And I say we, I include myself. Yeah. You know, I'd like to give a quote here. Do it. And this is to, I think, put the context to maybe where we have failed the spirit of Christmas or the spirits of Christmas. This quote, and then I'll say it and you tell me if you know, if you can guess who said it. I don't make deals for the money. I've got much more than I'll ever need. I do it to do it. Yeah, I think I know who that is. It's Donald J. Trump. Yeah. That's our president. And wherever we lie on the political layer, that's a fucking terrible thing to say. You know, that is terrible to say, and it's a horrible reality. And that comes from, that's a boast. That's not a, that's not, you know, that it's in his book about, you know, making great deals. And this idea that wealth is something that de facto we have to admire, to me, Scrooge tells us that no, wealth is meaningless, meaningless without love. And if you've got more money than you'll ever need, but you're still out there, trying to make more money, ask yourself, what can you do to help people to make a positive change? And I, I say that to have us take a really good look because one of the, the characteristics of our 45th president that people like is that he's rich. And to me, I've never understood why that was a virtue. Yeah. Because um, it, it's not. It's not. And there are enough studies out there, enough scientific studies that will tell you that wealth doesn't make you happy. As cliche and cheesy as that sounds, wealth doesn't make you happy. Friendship does. You know, a human connection makes you happy. Um, Look at the Scrooge household versus the Cratchit household. Right. Which one is happier? You know, the one that's of the haves or the one that's, you know, technically the have-nots. Um, I I would also love to share a quote just from... Uh, a writer who is clearly a um, in in the um, tradition of Charles Dickens in terms of her uh, her use of language and uh, her great crafting of stories around coming of age, do it and morality, and that's J.K. Rowling. Uh, and I think we can apply this to a Christmas Carol. I think we can apply this to all of our own lives. Do not pity the dead, pity the living, and above all, pity those who live without love. Well, well said. So I would like, and this is a total midnight myth boomerang, but Ooh, it's about boomerang. Scrooge. I would like to, A, I think we should end this episode with talking briefly our favorite adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. And then B, I might want to do a reading at the end. Okay. And it's a reading that I think is related and oddly enough is something that those who know me very closely they know that I am a, an atheist, you know, just crazy. An atheist who loves Christmas. 
Um, but, you know, I am. And I would like to actually do a reading from the Bible. I would love to hear a reading from the Bible. And first, I would love to push back on that idea that it's wrong for an atheist to love Christmas. No, because... it's, it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's just like you don't necessarily no, think atheists loving Christmas. It's surprising, you know? but I, I think it's important just to say that I, I think everything that we have talked about today reminds us that Christmas isn't just about the birth of a baby. Uh, Christmas isn't just about one faith. Uh, the the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of love uh, that we all have to feel around this dark and, and dizzy time uh, and project it into the year uh, all around. So with that, I would love to hear what you have to share from the Bible. Sure. Let's do our favorite adaptations first, or do you want to do that sure. last? Okay. Sure. Let's do our favorite ones first. Yeah. So go. Okay. So uh, I've talked about the Muppets a lot, and I do think that it's like probably in my opinion, like the best adaptation to uh, capture the spirit of A Christmas Carol um, in a sincere and beautiful way, but it's not my favorite, technically. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't see that. What's your favorite? Because my favorite is uh, Black Adder's Christmas Carol, um, which is uh, a BBC uh, show from, it's a BBC special from the show Black Adder, um, which was a great comedy show with Rowan Atkinson. And it's essentially a satirical Christmas Carol. It's Christmas Carol in reverse, where this character goes from being the kindest and loveliest man in all of London to the horridest man in the world. And it's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. You'll see lots of friendly faces uh, and you'll just laugh your butt off. And my whole family has watched it for years and years. So we you know all the lines by heart and we love to share them as little inside jokes. And it feels like mine. It feels really special and feels like mine. That's great. Um, so there are so many great ad adaptations my favorite, I'm going to say, is the first that I ever encountered. It was my first um, learning of the story of A Christmas Carol. That's 1983's Mickey's A Christmas Carol. With Scrooge McDuck? With Scrooge McDuck. Yay! And I love that. I've loved it. I mean, I saw that when I was really young, and I loved the character Scrooge McDuck, and then I loved the show Duck Tales that oh, focused yeah. on Scrooge McDuck. Uncle Scrooge! You know, and... Um, that was my first encounter of it. There's so many other great ones too. Just shout out to the Doctor Who version oh God, of Christmas so Carol. Good. Shout out to Scrooge with Bill Murray. Another really great adaptation. All right. Without further ado, I hope that you will find this reading as instructive as I found. To me, it is probably my favorite passage of the Bible. It's from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 19, the rich man. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, quote, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? End quote. Jesus said to him, quote, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, 
How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Mm. than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who, pardon me, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's beautiful. It's my favorite chapter from the Bible, and I will say, until next time, guys, be kind. Well done. We're halfway out of the dark. 